I am Solis Veritas, and this is the Defending American Exceptionalism podcast. It appears many Americans have forgotten what makes America exceptional. This podcast is here to remind them. The greatest country on earth has been so successful that it may now be suffering from that very success. The lack of any real suffering in recent decades has made it all too easy for people to criticize and malign the greatest country ever to have been established by man, while sitting comfortably in their centrally heated homes, watching big screen TVs, interacting with their fellow men primarily through social media, and experiencing life events via virtual reality video games. This podcast is meant to serve as a reminder and tutorial on the unique and special form of government our founders created, and to explain the real history, purpose, and structure of America. It hopes to offer a counter to the falsities gaining popularity in the past 20 years, probably even longer, that America is no better than any other country, no different and no more honorable. Indeed, the very qualities of our country and her people that make it great are under attack in a way that threatens the very foundation on which it balances. Keyboard warriors, echo chambers, and virtue signaling with no substance are all the means by which individuals hide from any thoughtful discourse with their neighbors and make nearly impossible any honest, intellectual discussion of the issues of the day. If you'd like to engage in those types of discussions, stay tuned. This episode is being recorded on October 15th, 2023, episode 114, Global Chaos. Israel is at war. And this war is starting to look like the kind of conflict that may upset the entire world balance. Terrorist organizations are launching large-scale attacks, now from both the North and South, targeting innocent women and children, and supported by the likes of Iran. Make no mistake, no matter the shocking claims being made by some, including some members of our own Congress, that Hamas and Hezbollah are not terrorist organizations despite their long histories of terrorism, these are acts of terror. Russia and Ukraine are still at war, and no end is in sight, and no end to our throwing money at Ukraine, for reasons not clear, is in sight either. China and North Korea continue blatantly to threaten actual conflict with the United States without any seeming fear of reprisal. All the while, our supposed leaders allow their own infighting to throw the house into chaos, make deals with foreign countries that only weaken our own national security, ignore our poorest borders, and seem to think it's more important to continue to pander to fringe minority groups domestically than to ensure the security of us all. What is happening in the Middle East is incredibly concerning. It is not of concern purely from a humanitarian perspective, but when viewed through the lens of the investigating of the role our own weak foreign policy may have had in allowing it, and in reviewing the segment in our own population who continues to make absurd claims about the evils of Israel on the one hand, and to defend the horrific acts of terrorist organizations on the other. So before I explore the most recent violence in this area, let's be sure some basic information about those involved in the current hostilities is understood. This is not necessarily a conflict between the Palestinians as a larger group and Israel. Though that group of Palestinians has certainly elected officials from Hamas, how much of that is free election is up for debate. This is a terrorist mission to destroy Israel as a first step toward destruction of many others, including the United States. At least one prior episode of this podcast discussed the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but today's events take that issue a different direction, to one that asks whether the United States stands behind Israel against terrorists at all. Where our nation is seeing pro-Palestinian marches and rallies, and some of our elected officials seem willing to demonize Israel in favor of support for Hamas and Hezbollah, it almost seems we have entered some sort of twilight zone. 
from students at Florida Atlantic University to people in New York City to elsewhere, rallies against Israel, and by default then, intentionally or not, in favor of these terrorist organizations, are being seen. It can be hard to understand what many are thinking and why. So let me make this very clear. Despite the refusal of Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib to condemn Hamas's targeting and beheading of children, which many tried to claim was not actually happening despite clear video and photographic images of these atrocities, this is not a situation where any difficulty choosing sides should exist. At least as these horrors have continued to unfold, even many of the more left in Hollywood have come out to publicly condemn the acts of terror against Israel, including everyone from Sarah Silverman and Jerry Seinfeld to Mark Hamill and Jamie Lee Curtis speaking out or signing letters condemning the evildoers and supporting Israel. Indeed, more than 700 of the Hollywood elite signed a letter condemning the Hamas attacks, writing, Under the cover of thousands of rockets fired indiscriminately into civilian populations, Hamas murdered and kidnapped innocent men, women, and children. They kidnapped and murdered infants and the elderly. They raped women and mutilated their bodies. They paraded their bodies through the streets and on social media and cowardly attacked the Supernova Music Festival, bringing death and destruction to an event celebrating friendship and love. This is terrorism. This is evil. There is no justification or rationalization for Hamas's actions. These are barbaric acts of terrorism that must be called out by everyone. They are a terrorist organization whose leaders call for the murder of Jews everywhere. Texts like this in a letter from even those on the left from Hollywood is a step in the right direction. But given the amount of anti-Israel sentiment being demonstrated throughout our nation, including such things as Michigan state legislators refusing to agree to a resolution condemning the recent actions of Hamas, Harvard students openly supporting Hamas, and a Virginia school board member refusing to support just a moment of silence for the victims of these atrocities, it is clearly not enough that some in Hollywood are on the right side for once. So let's talk about who or what Hamas really is. The founder of Hamas, Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, established this extremist Islamic group as the political segment of the Muslim Brotherhood. In its early days, it may have had some commitment in its attempts to counter the violence of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, whose tactics it was feared would lose support for the Brotherhood, to be less violent. But by just the year following its founding in 1987, the charter of Hamas clearly had as its stated priority the destruction of Israel. By the early 90s, Hamas's tactics included suicide bombers, and shortly after its efforts, Yasser Arafat signed the Oslo Accords with Israel, carving out a part of the Gaza Strip for self-governance by the newly created Palestinian Authority. Hamas openly condemned the Accords and made it clear they did not recognize Israel's right to exist. By 1997, Hamas was designated a terrorist organization by the United States. Though present in the Gaza Strip and elsewhere, Hamas leadership generally directs operations remotely due to their terrorist designation by a number of nation-states. Once housed, protected, and supported by Syria, that nation fell out of favor with Hamas, and Hamas with it, following participation by Hamas members in the 2011 protests that led to Syria's civil war. For that reason, leaders of Hamas moved operations to Qatar, Lebanon, and with some reportedly setting up in places around Turkey. Hamas has been successful in its political mission, taking over various positions in the Palestinian-governed areas of the Gaza Strip, a development that concerned many, but about which little has been done in recent years. Funded by wealthy private donors, taxes on goods that travel to and from the Gaza Strip in ways intended to circumvent various nation-state blockades on such commerce, 
with taxes on goods from Egypt reportedly totaling $12 million a month in 2021, and support from Iran, a nation that is said to provide somewhere around $100 million a year in addition to providing weapons and training and other goods to Hamas. Hamas is very well funded. Once aligned with Egypt's government, a change in leadership in that nation in 2013 created added hostilities toward Hamas and its terrorist activities. Claims also exist that funding for Hamas's terrorism is provided by Turkey, whose leader, President Erdogan, claims he only supports Hamas's political endeavors, though it is naive to believe both that statement, and even if true, believe that once funds are provided to Hamas, Hamas does not simply use them however it chooses. Since its takeover politically and militarily of the Gaza Strip and Israel's basic withdrawal from the area, Hamas has regularly targeted Israel with rockets and mortars, but nothing like what is now occurring. A short period of increased violence did occur in 2021, in which Hamas sent suicide drones into Israel, continued its rockets, and enlisted help from Lebanon-based Hezbollah. Then, on October 7th of this year, Hamas exponentially increased its offensive attacks on Israel. Strategically begun on a key Jewish holiday, Operation Al-Aqsa Storm saw Hamas, Hamas militants breach the Gaza border to enter southern Israeli towns, killing, wounding, and kidnapping Israeli troops and civilians along with sending rockets in high numbers as far north as Tel Aviv. The scope and surprise nature of these attacks has been likened to September 11th in our country, and though that comparison is not exactly spot-on, given the constant tensions in that area for decades, it does make the legitimate point that this offensive is different and more dangerous for Israel and for our own security concerns. The problem now is that in Israel's move to defend itself, it faces a two-front conflict— as Hezbollah has shown itself willing to enter with its own hostilities and agenda from the north. So who and what is Hezbollah? Similar to Hamas, Hezbollah sees its origins in the 1980s. It was founded specifically for the purpose of destroying Israel and embarking on an Islamic revolution in Lebanon. And it is the organization responsible for militarily pushing Israel out of southern regions of Lebanon, while also relatively and regularly, sorry, regularly invading Israel by entering through its northern border to launch attacks on Israeli troops and civilians. One such conflict in 2006, for example, lasted several weeks. Its leaders claim to have 100,000 fighters, precision weapons that can target any part of Israel, and support in the form of weapons and hundreds of millions of dollars from Iran. Its name translates to mean Party of Allah or Party of God. This Shiite militant group is based in Lebanon and arose from the 15-year Lebanese civil war. A declared enemy of Israel, Hezbollah has been designated a terrorist organization by a number of countries, including the United States. Its activities span well beyond Lebanon, with cells believed to be present around the globe. It entered the Syrian civil war on the same side with Russia and Iran, a different side than was supported by Hamas causing for some time a rift in the two groups until recently. They are, in fact, united in their intent to destroy Israel. Hezbollah is reported to have been involved not only in the Syrian civil war on the side of the Sunni rebels, but also in fighting that has occurred in Iraq and Yemen. Hezbollah rose in political power in Lebanon following the killing of that nation's prime minister and the withdrawal from Lebanon Lebanon by Syria, An international court actually convicted members of Hezbollah in absentia of that assassination. Its political power fading some in Lebanon, having lost its majority in last year's elections, it still remains a powerful political, and for purposes of our concerns, militant group, with influence throughout the nation of Lebanon. Where Hamas and Hezbollah remain unified in their goal to eradicate Israel, 
they are now taking actions that show that they are serious, that they intend to cease it from existing. And it appears that, has, that as Hamas launches its large-scale attacks from the south, Hezbollah is seeing its opportunity to attack from the north at the Lebanon-Israeli border. Iran's handiwork can also be seen in support for, for Hezbollah. Hezbollah does not only target Israel or those directly involved in the various conflicts in that region, but also targets distinctly Western interests, including suicide bombers at both U.S. Marine headquarters in Beirut and the embassy in Lebanon in 1983. And Argentina designated Hezbollah and Iran as responsible for a 1993 bombing of the Israeli embassy there, as well as for a 1994 bombing of a Jewish center in its capital. Both Hamas and Hezbollah justify their attacks on Israel by characterizing that nation as unlawful occupiers of Palestinian lands. It is important to note that Hezbollah's sole existence was for the purpose of ending Israel. These are different terrorist organizations, but both with the same end goal, armed conflict with Israel, to destroy it. In conflict with these organizations, there is no two-state solution, but only a single-state solution, as they do not and never will acknowledge the right of Israel to exist. All of the attempts of other countries to broker a potential two-state solution has always been a, an issue and a resolution that would never be tolerated by Hezbollah, Hezbollah or Hamas. Neither group sees any value in recognition of or normalization of relations with Israel, and that fact alone means that war has likely always been inevitable as long as these organizations continue to exist and to get the, the support needed from the likes of Iran. What is happening? What is the current administration doing about the events now unfolding? And what does it mean for the security of the United States? Those are the questions I'm asking. The disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan early in the Biden administration was the first clue of incompetence, and the news and actions of the current administration have not improved. Distracted and concerned more about forwarding a climate change agenda as a priority for foreign policy, it is under this administration that Russia invaded Ukraine, an Iranian spy operation infiltrated high levels of the State Department and Department of Defense, and that despite acclaimed success with a U.S.-brokered maritime border agreement between Israel and Lebanon just under a year ago, Lebanon-supported Hezbollah is now aligned with Iran-backed Hamas in armed conflict with Israel. Preoccupied when it comes to the Middle East with trying to resurrect the Iran nuclear deal, which was always a bad idea with a less-than-trustworthy nation, the rest of Middle East foreign policy is so muddled it is hard even to describe what the administration's policies are in the region. In recent negotiations with Iran, the administration agreed to release $6 billion in funds to that nation that had been frozen and inaccessible. The good news is that at least following the recent outbreak of violence in the Gaza Strip and Israel, the administration has taken steps not to release those funds, which luckily had not already made it into Iran's control. That doesn't change the fact the administration just last month agreed to release these funds as part of a prisoner swap, leading to the question how our own intelligence sources so failed to anticipate the recent outbreak of armed conflict backed by Iran against Israel by terrorist organizations. When asked how releasing those funds to Iran ever could have been a good idea, the administration's response is generally to claim the agreement allowed those funds only to be used for humanitarian purposes and that the use of them would be closely monitored. If anyone believes that would or even could be the case, I have some beachfront property in Arizona to sell to you. Of course, you don't need to take my word for it. Take the word of Iranian President Ibrahim Rassi, who openly stated, This money belongs to the Islamic Republic of Iran, and naturally we will decide to spend it wherever we need it. Not to mention, 
that even if those specific funds were only spent on human, humanitarian endeavors, all that does is mean that Iran does not have to spend other of its funds for those efforts and can direct its own other funds, the unmonitored ones, to its terrorist activities. Nor does now withholding those funds undo the bad decision originally made, or earlier ones, such as the decision to abandon arms and other resources in Afghanistan, that have already been shown to have made their way into the hands of the likes of various terrorists now present in the Gaza Strip. No doubt, everyone from Iran to Lebanon to Hamas to Hezbollah and more have been emboldened by the Biden administration's less-than-friendly stance toward our longtime ally, Israel. And it doesn't help when the administration's original public position, following the attacks orchestrated by Hamas, was to call for a ceasefire, the kind of public demand that the likes of Hamas and Hezbollah would surely ignore. But those groups could hope demonstrates both an unwillingness of the United States to take any real actions and also places pressure on Israel to attempt to work within U.S. demands. In other words, such public statements serve only to strengthen the terrorist resolve by acting as if there are two legitimate sides to this conflict, while showing little in the way of support for our actual ally. Simply being surprised by the attacks is no excuse for making harmful public statements. And if there is any doubt of intelligence failures, consider the statement made by U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan earlier this month in which he made this absurd claim. The Middle East is quieter today than it has been in two decades. Of course, that quiet was not, tr not truthful, but it was also the immediate precursor to the atrocities we are seeing today which actions are apt to destabilize the entire region with seemingly no plan coming from the White House as to how to prepare for that likely situation. But this is not the only evidence of incompetence when it comes to the Biden-Harris administration's foreign policy, sadly. There are many, many other examples. Nothing the United States has done has stopped Russia's offensive in Ukraine. At least publicly, no clear strategy exists and U.S. policy to this point has boiled down to repeated requests for more money to throw at the problem. Russia probably has some well-placed confidence that money and maybe some equipment are all America will do to attempt to address this aggression. And many analysts suggest that Russia may have been more inclined to engage in this conflict when it saw the clear failures of this administration in its withdrawal from Afghanistan. An overall appearance of weakness shown by the administration on everything from Afghanistan to the handling of the Chinese spy balloon certainly has not made the United States appear any stronger or more reliable for its allies than when Biden first took office. The Biden administration's inconsistency in dealing with Saudi Arabia, for example, only served to tighten that nation's relationship with China. And one would hardly know the United States was the only global superpower if it was judged by its influence in the likes of Sudan and Ethiopia, while the likes of Russia and China gain a further foothold in that region as well. As China and Russia grow in confidence, we can expect a greater chance that China takes steps to invade Taiwan in the face of what it perceives as U.S. weakness. And then there's North Korea. Regular reports of North Korea taking blatant actions to thumb its nose at the United States provides further proof that those not allied with us are becoming less and less concerned with our position or our possible response to any international crisis or event. Launching missiles, testing nuclear reactors, and more all appear to be something North Korea is more than willing to do, without any fear of diplomatic or military reprisal from the United States. Let us not forget that this failure in foreign policy should have been expected. As former Secretary of Defense under both Presidents Bush and Obama warned, 
um, Secretary Gates, said this about Joseph Biden. He has been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades. Sadly, that streak appears to still be intact. How this man and his administration can get things so wrong on the international front is a bit baffling, but is no doubt aided by a mainstream media who seems unwilling to characterize any error as such, and that routinely fails to ask the administration hard questions or demand answers whenever there is a clear foreign policy failure. Of course, this is the president who promised to restore stability to our foreign policy and credibility for us around the world. But the world we see today is one where our enemies don't fear us and our allies do not trust they can rely on us. That kind of foreign policy may provide consistency, but it provides no path for success in our dealings with other nations. As described by Heritage Foundation foreign affairs analyst Niall Gardner, the United States is in a far weaker position today than it was under previous administrations. Biden has projected weakness. You see it in the Middle East, where Iran has gained a lot of ground. You see it in Asia with growing Chinese aggression. The Biden administration is flailing on the world stage. With more than 3,000 dead already in the most recent conflict in the Middle East, and that entire situation and tally likely to change upward between recording this episode and its release, it is high time the people in our news media demand more from this administration. The conflicts may not end there. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has reportedly expressed concerns that the outbreak of violence in the Middle East may spread, as Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev has suggested he may soon take parts of Armenia by force, having already invaded the Nagorno-Karabakh region last month. And perhaps most telling about this administration's handling of foreign policy and the lack of any harsh criticism from anyone on President Biden's side of the political aisle is a continuing failure by that party and its supporters to understand that difficult situations cannot be fixed simply by tossing a little money one direction and then bowing out. Unfortunately, that appears to sum up our current foreign policy. As always, thank you for listening. To be clear, the United States does not have a role and should not step in into every international conflict. Doing so should only have been done when our own national security interests are at stake, to include obligations to our allies, to keep them our allies when appropriate, and only with a clear goal and strategy. This administration, however, lacks any of those pieces of a successful foreign policy. There are no clear goals. There are no clear tests or considerations for when a foreign event will trigger a need for us to act for our own security. There is no appearance of strength to increase the chances that diplomatic efforts can succeed without the need for military ones. There appears to be no confidence in the intelligence being gathered and processed, and there simply is no member of the administration who seems to understand what the real threats are. Being surprised by the attacks by Hamas, not anticipating the fallout of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, continuing to push climate change as the number one foreign policy priority without cause or concern for threats that could harm or even destroy us long before the climate might, and using our military as some sort of social experiment all serve only to push our enemies into taking more bold and more dangerous actions against us and our allies, and in continuing to reduce our influence on the world stage. Maybe that is what the left is aiming for, but I doubt that is the goal for most Americans. Alexis de Tocqueville understood the goals of war when targeting democratic societies when he wrote... All those who seek to destroy the liberties of a democratic nation ought to know that war is the surest and shortest means to accomplish it. 
Oh, our enemies know that to be the case, and they seek to attack democratic societies around the world. Freedom is not the goal of everyone. It is the goal of America and her people. Now, if only our own leaders would take actions to protect our freedoms by protecting us from outside threats and by protecting our place in the world as a beacon of freedom for others. Next episode, I will discuss how instability in the world requires us to make border security a priority, including a discussion of the changing demographics of those seeking to enter the country illegally, which further demonstrates the world's declining view of American power and influence. It's time for us to focus first and foremost on our own national security so that we may then effectively aid our allies through successful and well-thought-out foreign policy decisions and assistance. From successful immigration policy to addressing internal and international intelligence failures, there are a lot of ways our enemies can try to do us harm. It is the federal government's primary responsibility to prevent and protect us from that harm. Until next time, stay free, be brave, search for truth, defend our Constitution, and God bless America. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you can share the podcast with just one person, we can continue to further it by encouraging real discourse in society about the state of our nation and the world. If you wish to help this podcast continue, you can contribute to support it by going to the podcast page on Spotify and clicking the Support This Podcast button. The Defending American Exceptionalism podcast is written and produced by Solus Veritas. Original music by Canticum Octar. Special thanks to Morales Susceptor. Copyright 2023.